Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing 
every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Well, folks, I am sitting in one of North America's most beautiful places right now on a backcountry elk hunt with Kurt Howard, general manager at Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. We are cooling our heels this afternoon, Kurt. Is that what you'd say in this 85-degree temperature or what it feels like, 85? I would say exactly that, Randy. I don't even have socks on at this moment. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well... We have come in here five miles with the llamas loaded up. Uh, And I can't say that we have a lot to show for all the miles and all the elevation gain and loss. Well, I can tell you that I can verify that I have a lot of sore muscles. (laughs) And the older I get, the harder I try to stay in shape. It seems like the effort is... Almost not worth it. Maybe it's just to come in here and pound it out and suffer through it. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Is that what you feel like you've been doing is just suffering and pounding it out? Oh, no, not completely, no. But there's been moments. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel that. I, uh, this is my first real mountain hunt of the year. I did an archery uh, mule deer hunt in Nevada, but. In Nevada, in this area I had, there's roads on the top of every ridge. So it's from mining exploration. Okay. So you can drive to anywhere. It's it's almost like road hunting. And I was getting in shape thinking, oh, I'll need that in Nevada. Well, I get there and it's like, well, I could either walk up there where all those rigs are parked or I could drive up there and join them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but here, this is... Uh, this one's uh, got my my feet back in order, my back, my my everything else ready for what are going to be the rigors of of an elk season. So, yeah, I, I only wish that uh, I got more practice with my cutting and, and carving skills in the last five days. I'm going to have to ask you why, because I'm not following. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We've had a ton of fun. We're we're on our last day, and it's hot. And uh, the first day we were supposed to come in, we met up here in Idaho. And from the time I left Bozeman to the time I met Kurt, the weather forecast went from, oh, the next day, possibly, excuse me, possibility of rain to winter weather advisory yes and i think we did the smart thing by staying at the trailhead that night oh my goodness i can't imagine trying to come in here because we would have been coming in that afternoon into early evening and by then i think we were sitting at the trailhead in our pickups taking turns running the engine and keeping the cab warm just to, <laughs> just to you know get yeah. through that this it was it would have been brutal in here the way the wind was blowing the snow was blowing 
yeah. we, I didn't have the gear for that. No, I hadn't. Me. I looked at the forecast and it's like, oh, you know, it's supposed to have highs in the 70s many days and lows in the high 20s to low 30s at night. I'm like, oh, I, you know, no problem. Well, then we look at that other fork, the updated forecast, and it's single-digit wind chills down in the valley, which I don't know what that means up here in these basins, but I suspect there's some some difference. <laughs> and it, that wind had a had a mind of its own that day. Yeah, it blew hard down where we were that day, and then even part of the next day. But we got up and loaded the llamas. And got in here, I don't know, five-mile hike. Probably took us four hours to get in here. By the time we messed around and in the morning getting the llama loaded. But I, I wish we could report to the world that we found the hot spot, that the early September place to go in, in Idaho is right here. Yeah, that would be... Nice to be able to say that, but <laughs> people would want their money back if yeah. if we sold it as advice. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not what we've discovered. <laughs> uh, no, if you hear some wind noise, you hear some buzzing of flies. It is warm this afternoon here on our fifth day. It finally warmed up. I think it's definitely in the seventies. Yes, as many clothes as I had on hiking back to camp, I felt like it's in the nineties. But well, I've been able to take a short little nap in the afternoon as well as you on the days that are hunting allowed yeah and we've looked for sun because it's been cool yeah i tried that today no that wasn't happening yeah you want shade today shade. <laughs> so if you hear some background noise folks that's what it is this is a live in the field podcast at about mm, eight thousand feet elevation uh on the public lands of beautiful idaho with a beautiful little bubbling brook right there yeah you might even hear the little bubbling brook rolling by as, and you might hear the llamas purring over there we got one of them quigley he's he thinks he's gonna win a grammy award or something that guy hums and purrs and sings all day why wow, he's been at it this afternoon yeah i i got up uh, i took a nap in the shade i'm like what's that noise yeah, Quigley. Well, when we first come in, he was he was doing short little hums, little yeah. purrs. Now he's figured out these long, drawn out notes. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's 15, 18 seconds of continuous noise now. Maybe he's thinking that you're. He's also your entertainment, Kurt. I don't know. He he hasn't hmm. done it, whether or not we're paying attention to him or not. He's just he's just happy to make that noise. Yeah. Well, we thought we had all the conditions figured out. We're coming into a new moon. We hunted from the 8th through the 12th of September. 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, five days. We're you coming had some off, intel. Yeah. My crew, Marcus and Michael, had been in here the week prior. And actually, they'd hunted east of here, and they saw nothing. So they came in here where... I had done my e-scouting, and when Marcus got back, he's like, hey, good good choice where you're at. That's the only place we saw any elk. The downside is he only gave me three waypoints where they saw elk. Yeah. And there's a lot of square miles here. Well, in this country, Randy, is it's... I'm not saying we're covering vast country, but it's so up and down, it literally takes 
time to get someplace. Yeah. So when we have located elk, whether visually or vocally, uh, it, whether it's a morning or evening hunt, it, it, it's taken so much time to, to get there that hunt seems to have the doors closed. So it's, now it's the next morning or the next evening. It's not like some country maybe I'm used to up north where I'm from, where if you're hearing bugles, you're usually a 15 or 20 minute really good effort gets you there. Yeah. This country is so big. These, these mountains are so far apart that by the time you side hill and down through the valley floor, up the other side it's hour and a half two hours and the whole dynamic has changed the sun has come up and hit the hillside or the elk have started to go to bed i mean just all those classic things that um, you understand about elk habitat and you understand about what they do during the rut and they're always on the other side or (laughs) or the wind does something like i just we've been talking about it a lot this week because of this big country and how you know it's big sage hills with springs that have ribbons of of aspens and willows and then on the north faces and the east faces some dark timber yeah in the in the little drainages and we've been talking about is it really smart to come into a place like this and plant your stake in the ground and say this is where i'm going to be for a week because what if there were zero elk here yeah, without a plan B, yeah, you would just be taking your bow for a hike. Yeah, and even plan B, if you had a plan B, by the time we were to pull out of here and go to another spot, that's a day lost also. Yeah. I mean, we've lucked out. I think that we have seen elk every day, but getting encounters or anything like that has really been a struggle because, like you say, you, you see them up there on the ridge there I'm pointing behind us. And I timed it the other day. It's two hours from yeah. camp. And you gain 1,450 feet of elevation. And by the time you loop around, well, who knows where they're at at that point. They're to bed and gone and yeah. somewhere else. And it's, it's not like, well, I'll just drive to the next trailhead if this one doesn't work out. Or some of the places I hunt in Montana in the rut, and this is where a lot of people think I always hunt backcountry, backcountry, backcountry. In the rut, I will hunt some places with logging roads and stuff because I can get around really well. If this spot isn't working, okay, it's only 20 minutes to go check out another spot. It's not two hours up the hill to hope, just hope that when I get there, they haven't blown down off the other side that the wind hasn't done something screwy, which it always does. By the time you leave the bottom and you get to the top, the wind has always done something always different. Something different. So I, I bring that up because I think so many people consider that, oh, if I'm going to go do an archery elk hunt, I want to have this big basin all to myself. Well, we've had this basin all to ourselves. Yeah. We've seen the cowboys coming through here moving cows. That's, That's exactly right. We have not seen a single hunter in a week. Nope. And it's still really tough hunting. There's even a wall tent camp yeah. above us that yeah. they, they were in the beginning of the season that they're not there. Right, they're not so there this there's week. So no, there's no other hunter pressure here or nothing not no, this week only boot prints i've seen have been ours and a few horse shoot horse prints and you talk about that 
scenario in Montana where you're kind of a little more um, mobile, we do a lot of that in, in the part of Idaho I'm from. And so base camp is operated with a four-wheel vehicle. It may be your pickup. It may be your ATV. And if you have a day or two where you're, you're zero, it, it, it's a different dynamic. You get in the truck. You hop in the ATV. You can go eight or ten miles. Right. And now if you want to put in four or six miles of hiking, you can hunt completely different country. Right. That, that this is, we no. talked about it, those 10 or 12 square miles we have here is yeah. what we're working. Yeah. And we, this drainage from where it goes over the divide, about two miles that way, two and a half, and about a mile and a half, two miles south, and maybe two miles east, and then two miles west, so four miles, maybe, yeah, 15, 16 square miles at most. Yeah. And we can't cover it all in a day, not even close. No. And it's open enough that when we get up on top, you can glass and see, mm-hmm. you know, a reasonable amount of it and watch the edges of the timber and all that the classic places that you would locate elk, even if they're not, you know, we can't get them to answer bugles yeah. to locate them that way. Yeah. And we've had a few that, you know, answer us, but to get into a, a situation where you bugle and they bugle and you go back and forth, even from a distance, it's just been some lazy moans yeah. and... We did get into one bull that kind of enjoyed his chuckling a little bit, but he wasn't coming. He wasn't, he's with cows. He wasn't giving ground. And that was an open country. We couldn't move on him. And yeah. so. No, it's, it's been an eye opener for me. I, I don't hunt this kind of country in Montana. Listeners are probably wondering, well, Randy, why did you pick this spot then? Well, because I drive by here a lot. And I always said, I'm going to go hunt that someday. And then last winter when you and I were talking, I said, well, I'm going archery elk in Idaho. You're more than welcome to come with. Otherwise, I'll be by myself. I wish I could have given you a full disclosure, but I I didn't expect. Oh, yeah. We've both been on enough of these hunts to know that it can be all or nothing. Yeah. And, and I mean, I went on a backpack uh, archery elk hunt last year. I had an arrow in a bull before noon the first day. Wow. Dream come true. Yeah. And we hunted for three more days and we put another elk on the ground and that's that's why you do it. I mean, because you can occasionally, and I say occasionally because <laughs> I'll say I'll say this, more times than not, um, it's it, it that success rate with archery is low for a reason. Yeah. And you can do all of the right things and it doesn't all just automatically say, Okay, well my odds went from ten, fifteen percent to 40 or 50 just because we put the effort in right it's it just it just i wished it worked that way because we'd all be a hot yeah a lot more successful well if it if it worked that way we'd have at least one elk on the ground yes. i'm i'm confident that we've earned an elk <laughs> well we last Effort-wise. night was as close as we got and yeah neither one of us come in here with the idea that it had to have horns right i right. mean this yeah. was this was early season and neither one of us is bragging too much about how much meat's still in the freezer and yeah so it was that if it's brown it's down mentality and what that cow last night was what 59 yards yeah and, and 59 yeah uh, neither one of us yeah take a 59 yard shot so i'm sure everyone who's hunted many elk has had a situation like last night where we had bugled we'd got some far away bugle responses and we're like oh let's move a little closer and Earlier, we'd heard another faint, faint bugle right almost where these cows came out of. Yes. And we happened to be standing there waiting to hear for a response. 
And here comes some cows walking across the ridge top in front of us. She stops, the, the, the last one, mm-hmm. perfectly broadside, maybe even slightly quartering away. And it, the wind's perfect. Everything is perfect. I'm about ready to get the llamas and, and get them packing because <laughs> Kurt only has to take a few steps forward, you know, probably six, seven, ten, I don't know, 20 steps, if, if even that. And in the wind, she's not paying any attention. She's looking away from us. And your shooting lane is maybe 10 feet wide. And as you're getting closer, she it's not that she spooked. She decides there's some greener grass over behind the trees that now are between you and her. Yeah. I mean, that that's just bad luck. Yeah. I mean, you you can't you can't work hard enough to overcome just happenstance and, and bad luck. No. That's that's the thing about elk hunting that drives me crazy is the amount of effort it seems to take to get a shot opportunity. Yeah. Um and I've been doing this since the mid nineties. I mean, I've, I, I live in Idaho because of, uh, I was introduced to this state because of archery elk hunting. Yeah. And it, it just, it's so, I think that's what puts so much emotion into it. Yeah. Is because sure. there's so much effort for so little <laughs> and few opportunities <laughs> to draw your bow. <laughs> uh, yeah. I will. Have either, either of us drawn our bow this week? No, the last night was as close as we got. I yeah. had I had the release on the yeah the loop and was you know a couple steps away from drawing. Yeah. But no, I I really thought that was going to happen. And when she left, I thought that she was just going to mill around in that little opening there. But no, she's like, well, I think I'll take a few more steps and I'll go over there. And pretty soon she's in some timber where there's no shooting chance. Yeah. She didn't run. She just kept grazing and walking, grazing and walking. But Trying to keep up with that. Yeah. And then the wind was getting way more in her favor the further yeah. away she got. So Yeah. So and then this morning we've we've I've I'll take full credit for these mistakes, folks. Um we all know the guy who has the new fishing boat. And he launches and he drives to the far end of the lake, no matter what the fishing's <laughs> like. And the guys with the, you know, two, three year old old rowboat you know, they're fishing near the dock or the boat ramp and they're just knocking them dead. Well, that's how I was the first few days. We'd leave camp here in the dark or right at daylight so we could glass these ridges on our way. And uh, we we weren't having much luck. And so this morning I told Curtis that I'm not leaving camp until you bugle from camp. Because last night again, didn't did you say that bull was right up here? Well, I heard a bull when I was yeah from the tent when we were sleeping last night. Yeah, right here. Two nights before that, there were elk all over our camp. Yeah, it was like an elk carnival up there. Yeah, but at one o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Yeah, one in the morning. True, that doesn't do us any good. And where they went to, we could not relocate. So who knows what happened there? But so I tell Kurt. You, you got to bugle from camp or I'm, I'm, I'm not leaving till you bugle from camp. Well, the very first bugle he lets out him and Jonathan, the camera guy are like, Ooh, you hear that? I didn't hear it. And then you did another one and you got another response. I didn't hear that one. Finally, you aimed right at him and I took my hood off and put my good ear that direction. I'm like, Ooh, boy, yeah, I heard that one. 
So I thought this morning was going to be our chance. I mean, that guy was responding to you, and he's over. He's a mile away. Yeah. I looked on my my map. He was 0.98 miles away from where yeah. we are. He answered me every time. Yeah. It's crazy that sometimes you can get him to respond from that far, and then there's times that I feel like we were within 200 yards, and you can't get a response. Oh, I know we were a couple times. Yeah. But we're not sure what happened this morning because we hiked down there on the double time. We got there, and we're on the west side of the basin, and they're over on the east side. And we're slightly higher in elevation than they are at that time. And we got a wind that is kind of, if we were going south, our wind was kind of blowing to the southwest almost out of that drainage. Mm -hmm. And they're to our southeast, so it's like a 90-degree difference. And all of a sudden, within, I don't know, we glassed them up and we're plotting strategy for... Well, yeah, we looked three. long enough to find there was a nice bull yeah. with about nine, ten cows or whatever it was. Yeah, and he was really letting it go, boy. He was excited. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, one of the cows has got her nose in there, and off they went. Yeah, they and lined not out. not slowly. Not at first. No. And uh, I, I'm at a loss for how that happened because it just, I've hunted a lot of elk and that's the first time I've ever had the wind, a crosswind that an elk smelled that was 90 degrees difference between the wind direction and the elk. Yeah, if, if, if that's truly what happened, something different, was going on with the wind when it got out in the middle of the canyon because yeah. to let the listeners know i think we were what we were a couple hundred feet in elevation at minimum to the bottom oh yeah or yeah. maybe more yeah so there was a pretty big crevice between us yeah um and they were 610 yards yeah. away so that that scent had to maintain that level across that whole valley it wasn't like it was just across the yeah. The hillside, it was literally across an open vast at 600 yards that then was hard right to us where you would have thought, and yeah. downhill mm -hmm. where the, the wind and the thermals and everything would go that way. Yeah. And the way they were kind of easing uphill, I thought they had a downhill wind. You know, they yeah. usually are going to bed and feeding with the wind in their nose and they're kind of angling up the hill away from us. So I thought of anything, the wind on their side was, down. was coming from the top of the ridge down from them, so I'm, I, the last thing I thought of at that point is we were talking strategy and trying to come up with what our big plan would be for today was that they would smell us. Right. And we, we're still not sure if they smelled us because not too long ago, a Wrangler cowboy dude came rolling through here with his last few cows he's taken off the range this this year this is a public grazing allotment and he had to come up here sometime this morning with his his uh herding dogs so what he had three dogs yeah and a horse i don't know if somehow maybe they were on the hillside just around the ridge from us and the elk saw him or something i yeah because he might have been coming up because we know that he brought the cows past us here a little bit ago. Yeah, and he got and he wicked. brought he he brought them from up above us. Above the camp, so he got around our camp. Yeah. Without us seeing him at any time today. Yeah. Even after we 
went up the mountain to, to figure out where the elk went and all that. And we'd yeah. never seen him. So my only thought is maybe with that, you know, there's kind of that ridge that, or that flow of, of landscape to our right that would have opened up to a canyon to our west. Maybe he was coming across that hillside looking for cows, you know, moo cows yeah. at the same time. And maybe that's what they saw or something. Yeah. But I don't know. They Sometimes when they smell you, they'll bark. We didn't hear that. Nope. We didn't hear any of the things that normally... If you if you spook elk, you're either going to hear a bark or you're going to hear footsteps, like thundering herd. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't hear either of that no. this morning. So I don't know. I'm just going to chalk it up to really bad luck, Kurt. Well, we've had plenty of that, so <laughs> it, fits. it fits what this week's been like, it seems. We've started doing these things called Lessons Learned on my YouTube channel. And this one has me with a lot of points to think about of do you, in, so in later seasons of the, what I call the post rut, which is the last half of October and November or December, I will go into these really desolate areas because I know the bulls will hang up in here. They're the last to come out. Yeah. And if I had a rifle, well, we would have been cutting and gilling gutting and gilling if we would have had a rifle on Oh, I, I can think setups. of three occasions just immediately where yeah. we were putting something on the ground with but a gun. They, that, I think that's a lower risk in a rifle season compared to the super high risk of coming in and planting your stake in the ground and say, this is where we're operating from and we're going to make it work. Well, we found out that you can try really hard, but sometimes if you get a little bit, a little bit of bad luck along with that, it doesn't work very well. No, that's nope. <laughs> but the first night is when I thought, oh man, wait, we the golden ticket is just it's we're here because we we get in here after the big weather advisory, get camp set up, get the llamas taken care of, get organized, and now we've got four hours to hunt. So we march up this hill up here about. I don't know, 1,200 feet elevation gain, and we get up there, and your fourth call, you get a bull to respond. I'm like, that's why you bring the guy from Rocky Mountain hunting calls with you. There ain't nothing to this stuff. He just walks up here, blows his horn, and we got a bugle. Yeah. And then we went in on him. Nobody is so timid. that. Yeah, and he just... He baffled me a little bit. Where I heard him bugle last and where we set up on him, he somehow got up on the he got a hundred yards above us. Yeah. I just didn't even, it just wasn't where he was. He bugled from. It wasn't what the terrain was telling me he was doing. And yeah. so he was, he was off to our left shoulder from where we were set up. And, uh, he come in to 80 yards yeah. uh, in the timber, but he, he come in and did the classic thing. He didn't bugle and then show up. He just, he shows up and he barked because he couldn't figure out exactly what was going on. Yeah. And he just did that nervous bark that bulls do. And, of course, he bugled after that. But he was just edgy enough that you weren't weren't closing that gap. And I, I mentioned that because we were trying to execute the classic hunter-shooter, the shooter out front and the caller behind. And you chose to call that night. Yeah. And um, we just set up. It, we had he... the right spacing. If I'd have been a quarter turn, mm -hmm. 
out in front of you, different, I'd, I'd have got a shot at that bull. I'd have been 30 yards or so and right. and could have shot, but we just... But based on where he responded at first, he was downhill right, from us. Right, right. And by the time we work our way over to the next ridge, three, 400 yards, if that. If that. Yeah. He's now moved up the ridge. And so when we set up, with me kind of just over the on one side of the crown of the ridge and you down thinking we got him in a straight line... All of a sudden, he's over to our left. Yeah. 120 yards. I would have never dreamed in the time it took us to get there that he was going to go that far left. No, I, I was totally caught off guard. Yeah. As was he in that in that instance, and we just, it just kind of, <laughs> <laughs> it kind of fell apart pretty quick. Yeah. Well, after that, though, I thought, man, there's, this is, I hope these llamas are in good shape because they're going to yeah. be toting a lot of meat out of here. Yeah. But. I think I might have got my my chickens. Yeah, the day after that, we did the big, long, like killer hike, and to no avail to speak of. Yeah, that and uh, that was a day we covered so much great elk habitat. We were covering a lot of those north, those drainages that run north that have good bedding cover. Some of them that run northwest have good bedding cover, and then we even took advantage of some of the stuff that faces northeast on our way back and. What did we get? One little bugle? And a the moan, kind of a bugle that morning. Enough to tell us where to spend that midday nap type thing, eat lunch deal, and wait till, you know, late afternoon to to get. But man, there was, it was crickets that afternoon when yeah. we, just, we lit those calls up. Yeah, that that's crazy. I mean, it, we'd just come off that really cold, cold weather, so it was still pretty chilly. Yeah. It's not like... They had to go in bed to prevent from being overheated because I don't think it got over 55 degrees that day. No, no. <laughs> and uh, whatever day that was, September 9th or something. Yeah, it was the first full day we were here. Yeah, I mean, that's like perfect conditions. That's that's what you want for elk hunting. Yeah. I remember getting up early that morning in the dark and looking and the moon is just setting and there's less than a half moon. I'm like, oh man, we're going into the new moon. Mm-hmm. If that does really matter, we hit it just right. And we put on over nine miles, get back to camp well after dark. And all we had to show for it was one lazy laying in my bed all bugle just because I've yeah. wanna you, it was more of a yawn than a bugle. Yeah, just I'm tired. You hush. I don't need to. I don't need to play with you right now. <laughs> uh, and the reason that we're telling all of these things that happened is one, it's relevant to sitting here. But I think there's so many lessons that that people can get from this because a lot of our listeners aren't people who've been doing it for 20 or whatever years like you and I've had the pleasure of doing. And I want people to understand that just because you've been doing this for 20, 25, 30 years, it doesn't mean that it's easy slam dunk. No. You know, just walk out here and uh, they decide that they want to put their paws up in the air and let you shoot them. Yeah, it's just, I hope people understand that that's not the the reality. Yeah. and uh, it, it seems to, uh, I don't know, again, it's back to that, the, the highs and the lows yeah. and the emotions and the different things that come with it because there is, uh, 
that element of this, you know, speaking mainly of the backcountry stuff, because you, yeah. we've, I don't want to reiterate it too much, but like you said, plant your stake here and here's your spot. You're going to spend your time yeah. and then what you can actually access with just your boots yeah. and what you can get done because there's the next ridge and the next ridge and all that big piece of timber there that yeah. that, that could be the place to be. But at some point you just physically... You can't do it. There's not enough time in the day to leave your spike camp and go there and get back at dark yeah. and so many variables. So we just pound the same small group of elk that we've seen or located and just try to intermingle. There was that one evening that we went in to that same spot below where right. we talked about that bull that came in the first night. And we did a classic setup early, well, I shouldn't say early, late in the afternoon, that classic cow communication, all that ruckus you make just to see if we could pull. And we expected to see something silent because yeah. we'd seen a little spike go in the woods that yep. mid midday. Yeah, we thought for sure he'd come check us out. Yeah, and we just knew he would, oh, good grief, he, he can't resist. Yeah. Well, nothing. And so then it's, what, 6.30 when we pulled the pin on that and we creep through the trees and look at that hillside that we had seen and by then, the elk were out. Yep. And I think we seen five different antler bulls yep. that night, right? We saw that spike way in the back corner because he, he was afraid of getting whooped. Yep. Saw a raghorn, which was the first bull. First one you seen. spotted, that's right. And then out came a nice six point with six, eight cows, something like that. Yep. And then, then another five point came off the top by himself. Yeah. And then at the end, right there towards dark, we had a cow and a calf come in front of us at about 105 yards and a, and a nice five point behind them. And at that point, um, as far as from a calling sequence, you had gotten behind me. Right, we did. And you were, you were calling. Mm -hmm. And uh, the bugling didn't do much, so you were staying on the cow calls, which was getting some bulls to bugle. Yeah. They weren't moving from their cows, but our whole idea was to try to pull that little raghorn around. Yeah. Well, we had... We had separated far enough that I couldn't communicate with right. you. And, I couldn't see you. And and at that point, I, I did the, I broke the rule of the caller shooter and I called, mm -hmm. which and I say break the rule. And typically right. well, when you. We, we had no time left. Yeah. When you dark. do that, and, and, I, and for the audience, just, just a little tidbit of information here, is that classic caller shooter thing. There's no reason for the shooter to call because once he does he just gave up his location. So any advantage that you had in fooling that elk's depth perception of how far that caller was or that elk that he thinks it is, you've just, you eliminated that. So there's no reason now for him to focus on the further elk. He's going to focus on the, on the closer one. Right. Um, anyway, at that point, the gig was up as far as me and you communicating. So I just, I thought, well, here's the perfect scenario. We always talk about um, being aggressive and calling aggressive when you're inside a hundred yards or so with an elk, because you have to make them make a choice of fight or flight. They're either going to come protect their cow by fighting you, or they're going to gather her up and run. And usually in a hundred yards or something, you've, you've given them no choice. I think you have a classic saying you've been telling me all, all week about, um, hold my beer. Hold lady. my beer. Thing. I'm going, I'm going to go whoop this guy. Hold That's my beer. Right. I'll be right back. Yeah. yeah. So I, I just picked up the tube. And I just gave that bull a challenge bugle that should have raised the hair on his neck to the point where he didn't know what was coming. And Randy, the stupid thing, just looked at me like I didn't make any more noise than <laughs> if I'd have snapped my fingers. And he never bugled back. He yeah. never ran. He just stood there at 100 yards like 
what are you doing? I, I've got no interest in you bugling at me. I'm not moving. And yeah. he just followed those cows. And by the time it got so dark, we couldn't even see. He was still only 130 yards out there in the open. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even know those ones came out. I I wish I knew they had. I would have tried something different, but yeah. they came out of that gully off to our right. Yeah. And I'm back in the trees thinking, well, if I'm going to call that five point off that hill. And he started coming until he got to the fence line. And then he kind of just like, yeah, I don't know. I thought, well, I got to be out of sight. I don't want him to be able to see where the call's coming from. So I went back into the timber a ways. And that's, that was a mistake on my part where I lost any visual where you could give me a hand signal like, hey, yeah. light it up. Or... I think the only thing I would have tried to do there, I would have I would have had you try to rake. I would okay. have tried to have you be aggressive with the raking and not use the bugle. And sometimes that's enough. Mm -hmm. um, because remember that two of those bulls on that hillside, the two bigger ones, yeah. the bigger five point and the six, both raked that night, yeah. um, provoked or unprovoked by each other. Mm -hmm. And so you know, I think I would have just said, you know, I'll give you some kind of hand signal about raking a tree or something yeah. right there just to see what reaction we got. But yeah. well, again, I mean, I, I kind of felt bad there because I was so, I didn't know that other bulls there. I'm locked in on the one I can see up on the hill through the limbs and I'm like, I'm just going to stay out of view. And that put me out of view of you and that, in that collar shooter setup, that uh, losing visual is if you don't want to do that if you can help it. Right. And so that was some type of communication yeah. that you can use. Um, if, if the guy that's shooting, you know, can see something the caller can't, there can be a big advantage to that. Yeah. Even if it's so. just a hand signal or something. Whether it's a, I've had it work in my advantage where all you do is just make another call. I need you to make another call. Yeah. I need the bull to make one more step or do something to turn his head so I can draw or, you know. So, yeah. again, just a, a tip yeah. is to well, try to maintain I was all something. in on that other guy, and I was, we'll, we'll put that check mark in randy's column of, well randy screwed up another one no, i wouldn't i wouldn't say that <laughs> it was but there everything that we've done here has been such a learning or uh, i hate to say learning lesson most of them are reminders because it's not the first time that it's happened to me no, it's me a neither. different it's kind of a derivative of the same type of misfortune or mistake or whatever it might be and I don't know the the elk densities and the the elk densities are pretty low given how much country we're covering, but also the bull to cow ratio is nothing to get excited about. Like last night, we saw two groups of cows that didn't have a bull with them. Right. September eleventh, twelfth, twelfth. Yeah. Well, and and that's what we've reduced our hunt to for tonight, right? Yeah. That's. We haven't got a bull uh, located now after that one boogered off this morning. Yeah. And we know it's a couple groups of cows, and I guess the best we can wish for, you know, tonight as far as location, if they're going to bugle, is a bull found them or something. Yeah. But, yeah, that's what it's coming yeah, down I mean, to. That's weird to be September 12th and not even a raghorn with them. You know, it's very disappointing to me, I'll say the right. least, because I, I get to make elk sounds every day of my life. Yeah, you, you I build mean, calls. I drive the people that work for me nuts because I can't <laughs> stop. I'm testing this call, or somebody hands me this, and is this put together correctly, and whatever, and this new contraption to blow them through. And I mean, every day I'm listening to stuff, chirp and yeah. mew and bugle and all of it. And to come out here in the woods and actually do it to the elk, you want, I don't 
I don't expect to kill one every time they bugle, but I just like that that interaction. And you said yeah. to the camera guy early on how cool it is to to make a sound and get an animal to react and give the sound back to you. Yeah. Not run away or make yeah. a sound to scare them. We can all do that. Yeah. But to literally make a sound that they're complacent enough to just to respond to it. Yeah. And that's yeah, what I, I, don't get that's that what I like. Fishing. I don't get I don't yell and the fish does anything back or when I'm bird hunting or whatever. I guess maybe to some degree when you're turkey hunting, maybe when you're waterfowl hunting, but I don't know of any seven hundred pound animals that Maybe moose, I guess. But. Yeah, but I spent a lot of time hunting moose and called a bunch of them, and it's not, they don't call with the ferocity right. of an elk. Now, they call, and you mm-hmm. can call them, but the just the uh, the emotion and the, f- the fierceness of an elk bugle yeah. is totally different than moose. Yeah. Totally the, different. When my body can feel that bugle, then I know, all right, this has been one of those successful encounters where I got close, I got him worked up. And if you put a heart monitor on me at that point, you'd think I was having a heart attack. <laughs> and even after years and years of doing it, it's what you live for. Well, that's, what, it, that's why it, we do this. Yeah. And I, I just feel bad because I know a lot of other elk hunters who you went archery elk hunting with. And, you know, you guys shoot them the first day or you get two in a <laughs> week or something. And... I'm feeling like I drug us down a dead hole here. Oh, I've been on uh, plenty of trips like this where it's just one thing after another just seems to get yeah. in the way and makes it tough. I've, I was telling you about a season three years ago when I was hunting with the founder of our company, Rocky Jacobson, and he is he has taught me more about bow hunting than any single person going. He's just it's in his blood. And... Uh, I was telling you that year I hunted that last season that I hunted with him, we spent about nine or 10 days hunting and we spent two or three days in the middle, completely relocating. Now again, I'm talking one end of the unit. We drove a hundred miles north to get into a completely different country just because we weren't getting any action. No different than what what we've seen, you know, action enough to make you want to stay and, and, and right. spend the rest of your time there. And um, I was telling you, I, I drew back on three different bulls that year and something happened in each of those situations where I'd all at, was at full draw and didn't release an arrow. Yeah. You know, uh, just different things. So, well, you know, it, it, it can be all kinds of things. I know that it's just part of hunting, but when you have those days or those weeks, it's like, dang it, why couldn't this have happened some other week? If it, now, next week, you're going to Montana with yep. our buddy Ken, yep. and I'm going to Wyoming. Who knows? Maybe next week, they'll just run us over, and uh, we'll circle up and like, oh, yeah, yep. you should have been here this week. Yeah, you should have been here this week. Yep. You never know. Yeah, I was talking to the cameraman, Jonathan, um, just yesterday afternoon when we were eating lunch, and uh, he was telling me he hadn't been on uh, an archery elk hunt yep. in, in September. I'm like, wow. Well, try not to judge everything off of what you're seeing here. <laughs> I told him, but I said, because I said years ago when I was doing what you do as yeah. far as videotaping everything, every, everything, the TV thing, um, I was fortunate enough at that point to spend all 30 days of September in the woods, mm-hmm. whether that was just in Idaho where we jumped to Montana or maybe even more. We'd spend a week in Montana afterwards. 
And you spend that many days in the woods and you do get encounters and you learn um, a lot of different things. But I was telling him, there are those magical days when you can get in a group of elk and there's a cow or two in heat. Yeah. And you can't describe the the frenzy and the chaotic craziness that that is from a calling standpoint to anything. I can remember years and years ago, um, I killed a bull on a, on a morning hunt. I shot a forked horn spike and we found these elk because this other bull was bugling. We, this was a, we took bicycles in to get into this thing. Randy, it was off the lock saw for anybody that knows uh, geography in Idaho. That unit now is decimated, but there used to be a lot of elk there. Yeah. Shot a forked horn bull. We got that bull quartered up, and we took him out on the bicycles, not riding, but we literally laid the quarters on the seat and, tight, and just walked, walked it out. <laughs> the, 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 the main herd bull bugled the entire time we cut the elk up, the entire time we packed it out. We went back in that evening with my partner. That bull was still worked up, still bugling. He ended up shooting a cow that night out of that same herd. That bull bugled from daylight until dark all day long. Yeah. And it, we just end up, again, not trophy hunting, not having to kill a herd bull or whatever, didn't matter. But if you've ever experienced that, you're hooked on this. Yeah. And you'll go through weeks and understand the, the downtime to live to be in the woods on those days when it is absolute chaos like that. Yeah. Well, I just, if, if you can get that one or two cows that are about ready, oh my goodness. It is, it, it's like that two-year-old black lab male. <laughs> you know, he's he's got one thing on his mind and don't distract me. Yeah, that's right. It's, so, but it, it's not like that every day. Like, you know, Corey, he was hunting Idaho last week. He texted me the day we were heading in saying, it's tough. Yeah. It's really tough. And I don't know if for them, they, they had such hot temperatures. Whew. Yeah. I mean, it was it, hot. The only thing week. that could be worse than what we've encountered with the lockjaw here is, you know, 80, 85 degree temperatures. Yeah. I don't even know what you would do then. Oh, it's tough. Yeah. Uh, usually, <laughs> back in the day, you simply... Just waited it out. Yeah. You might go home for a few days. I mean, depending, you know, I did a whole lot more um, hunts that weren't like this one. Yeah. Where you did a base camp with pickup trucks or something right. and you were set up for a month. And mm -hmm. even sometimes a lot of those hunts we would do with like a pull trailer or a camper. Yeah. And that would be your base camp. Um, but sometimes you just wait it out. Yeah. But, but the one thing that I, the one thing I've noticed, and we haven't really spoke about this this week, and it may have no relevance to anything, but... In the 20 plus years that I've been doing this, our Septembers have gotten drier and drier. Yeah. I can remember in the, in the late 90s and all through the early 2000s, you, you were guaranteed to be soaking wet from the thighs down every morning, if nothing else, just from the dew on the grass yeah. and stuff. And our, our conditions here have just been different, been off for a while, yeah. and it's drier. And I, again, I can't associate that with nothing other than well, just paying attention to, to what it was like, yeah. you know, 10, 15 years ago. And, and oh, I, I have no idea if that changes when or how much they bugle, but you know, we haven't had dew yet here. No, none. Zero. Nothing. We had frost. Frost. But nothing so, like get up in the morning yeah. and everything's damp. And I don't know if that damper air, you know, gets them friskier. I know guys have talked to me about 
old timers will tell you, I can tell you when the elk are getting going because you just watch that old horse in the pasture and when the sun comes up and it kicks its heels and it's running and playing and doing its thing and feeling good about itself, so are the elk. Really? But I mean, oh. that was, you know. Maybe I, I need a horse in the pasture. Uh, <laughs> one no, of the guys he's used still to, laying down. I'm, I'm going to just sleep <laughs> yeah. in today. <laughs> well, one of the guys would tell me that was Rocky and he's I've known him for two decades now. And, yeah. And he still has horses, and, and yeah. you know he he could tell well, you stuff. Like it's that, just the the point of these kind of things are to let people know that there's a learning experience to to come from this. Like I'm making all these mental notes for next year of okay, I am not going to go and plant my stake way in some place that is as tough and big as this country is. I need more mobility. And here's the crazy part. Last year, I went into a hunt in Montana, did pretty much the same stupid mistake. <laughs> but that one, I'd been in scouting before season, and I was seeing hundreds of elk. Oh, there you go. And at the bottom end of the canyon, it was private. And until forever, no one was granted access okay. in the bottom of the canyon. And a burn had been through there. I'm like, oh. You know, yeah. as long as there aren't a bunch of hunters who come in, we're ready. So I get everything lined up, get the Gerber guys coming. Well, two weeks before season, it's announced that the landowners struck a deal with the Forest Service and going to allow access in the bottom starting in 2020. <laughs> well, I'm thinking, well, 2020. Well, being a good guy, the landowner's like, ah, what the heck? You guys, some of you just come on now. And so... We came in over the divide seven miles with llamas to this to the top end of this burn, and everyone else only had to walk like half mile, and they were in the lower end of yeah. the burn. And if it wasn't good, I'll drive back home, and you know I'll come back two days two from days now. from now. Yeah. So I kind of made a little bit of the same mistake this year of decreasing my mobility by the fact that it's. It's tough. You know, people, if anyone thinks that you're going to take down your tents, take down your camp, all of our production gear, load the llamas, and move another five miles and do that every day, you're going to spend all your time moving. Yeah, you will. And so, and then you get towards the end of the hunt, like today, where those bulls and that bull and those cows headed off, and I pointed to that far ridge over there, and I said, Kurt, if those elk are on that far ridge over there in that timber i'm not going because <laughs> it's three miles as the crow flies and we're dropping 1500 feet and we're gaining 1500 feet that's even steep that ridge is even a, a steeper grade steeper grade yeah and so it does wear your body down after a while when your yeah. mobility is all based on your feet yeah just... and the thing for me as i creep through this life getting older and older is um <laughs> And I'm older than you. <laughs> I know. Not that much. Um, you know, there's something to be said about a mattress. Oh, In yeah. sleeping. I mean, we got good gear. We got yeah. great companies with awesome gear. But I'm telling you, sleeping on the ground, you. I don't, I haven't gotten, you know, where you fall asleep and you sleep hard for four, five, six hours. I don't do that. No. I haven't I done don't do that, that the whole time we've been here. So, uh, and again, you know, it's about, and I th thank us guys that are <laughs> a few days older than some others, you yeah. know, require a few more <laughs> minutes yeah, I'm gonna of sleep. Be, I'm going to be 56 in less than two months. And, you know, I sign up for 
65 to 75 days of this every every year and it definitely gets harder i need more rest i and the mattress thing you say is it's very true some people will be like well why are you doing a motel hunt that week <laughs> you know what i've been sleeping in towns 40 nights already i need a motel for a week okay yeah. Grant me a comfort here. <laughs> exactly. That's why I was giving you a hard time this morning when I when those elk got away from us and I told you to look on the bright side and you said what? And I said, hey, you've only got 65 more nights of this to go this year. You said you had about 70 nights scheduled in the tent and we spent five, I think, now. So, Yeah, well, I lucked out that I already got seven of those out of the way in Nevada too. Oh, so yeah, I'm, there you I'm go. probably down to like 55 days. 55 left. is all. Yeah. yeah. But, well, I'll be thinking about you well, in a couple of weeks when I'm back in my own comfortable bed and yeah. hunting Montana's over. And, yeah, and you got elk in your freezer and you'll be thinking, I, I so. wonder if Newberg ever figured out where those elk are. Yeah, I get to take a couple of weeks off before I head to South Dakota and meet up with our buddy Ken. Oh, yeah? You going deer hunting? We're going we're gonna to chase some mule deer in South Dakota with our bows and okay. see what we can do. Spot yeah. and stock on some mule deer. We've oh, been, that'll be fun. Him and I have been talking about just doing a a hunt together where it's something we both want to do and it's not necessarily tied to any particular part of this industry. I mean, yeah. you know, this is, we eat, breathe and sleep, but, but, um, yeah. just, just a couple of good buddies that work together, just play together. And we're yeah. gonna, we both decided we wanted to do that. So that'd be fun. If the wind's not blowing 90 and the snow's going <laughs> crossways, <laughs> it should be enjoyable, but it uh, is, it is South Dakota in well, October. So who uh, knows? Ask Ken. Did, maybe has he ever told you the story about when he and Andy McCormick from Howa Legacy Sports were there, and they in the truck they 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 had a a guide with them from the reservation, and they rolled the truck. He didn't tell me that. Oh, <laughs> so funny! I'm going to abbreviate the. They're side hilling. They're driving out. I think they're going out to get a deer that someone had shot. In the slope, they're going across the hillside, you know, side hill. <laughs> yeah. And it's getting so steep. And uh, <laughs> the guide just says, hey, better bail. And he jumps out as the truck starts to rolling. <laughs> and Ken hears him say, better bail. And so Ken bails out. And Andy's in the middle. And he's go through, <laughs> down oh into goodness. the coolie with the truck. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ken said the guide was like, well, I told you you needed to bail out. <laughs> yeah, I, that sounds like Ken, definitely. <laughs> so if if he's uh, going to retrieve a deer, uh, be careful about what kind of side yeah. hill he takes well, <laughs> year Not this past April, but the April before, we went over there with him in the spring. And he puts on a nice turkey camp and we went over and we were, you know, uh, we had some new calls we were trying and we were doing some stuff. And uh, there were some guys from RMEF there, Bob Swanson and a bunch of them. And uh, they had a blizzard. I mean, a literal, literal white out stop, all traffic, open roads kind of blizzard in April. We showed up over there, Randy, and the snow was to our knees. Wow. But didn't phase the turkey hunting. Really? We were killing turkeys. Huh. It was spring and the gobblers were gobbling and the hens were doing their thing. And and uh, we, did, we didn't do as much calling as we did sneaking around getting yeah. birds. But huh. man, um, that's some crazy stuff over there. The yeah. weather can be who knows what. But. Well, he's a great dude. I hope you have a good time yeah, with him next I'm looking week. forward to it. Yeah, yeah. But 
uh, switching from all this fun stuff of hunting, the world of elk calls and hunting calls, not just elk calls, you guys got turkey calls and you got predator calls and you got wolf calls and you got, yep, deer calls. You guys got pretty we much have, We everything. have a deer grunt. Yep, we do a deer grunt. Some what, what is the, the business cycle of your craziness 80-hour week? I mean, it must peak in what July, August. Yeah, it, shipping? It, yeah, and it depends on what how you define a peak. <laughs> Are we okay. talking just a few days? Uh, it, it is chaos for us. Um, the month of of August is okay. just just uh, you know the wheels off kind of thing. Yeah, start to feel it latter part of July. All of August is crazy, and then it'll slow down about the middle of the month of September for the elk side. Okay. But um, as we, our vision for Rocky Mountain um, has been the last few years to to expand um, our products beyond the elk, and Predator was the first real um, hard effort we put at it yeah. with research and development products and, and, and materials, specifically materials to make better sounding calls. Yeah. And so um, we're seeing some fruits of our labors there. Okay. Um, orders for our Predator stuff are off the charts coming up this fall and into the winter. Yeah. Uh, that's for U.S. and Canada. Yeah. Um, we have a presence in Canada as well. And um, like I said, what we did is we, we took some stuff that we did pretty well with and redesigned um, some of our howlers and the, and the coyote side of things and locators there um, took that a different direction to, 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 to better the sound we were getting with them. And then I specifically mentioned materials. We released a line of calls this year in 2020 called the Atomic 13 series. Mm -hmm. And we've got uh, an elk call in that line and, and a bunch of predator stuff. Um, they're all made out of aluminum. And I mean, I'm talking um, spun, turned aluminum, yeah. um, not poured or anything like that. These are billet pieces that are one-off turned, high-quality um, handheld calls. Um, yeah. What's the logic behind an aluminum call versus a plastic well, call? Well, let me make it... I'm, I'm going to make it as simple as I can. Sure. Um, we're th we make items that replicate noise. Yeah. Um, and what are the best noise replicators that humans have developed over years are musical instruments. Right. When you buy high-quality musical instruments yeah. or even low-quality, real, authentic musical instruments, you're not buying plastic. Yeah. You're buying high-end wood or metal, yeah. brass and different types of metals. Um, they just, metals just have a characteristic of tone quality and a richness in sound and, and just the rings and the harmonics and all of that with sound replication is just better yeah. with metal. And to make game calls out of brass or something like that would just be, first of all, it's not strong enough. Yeah. You would dent it and, and it would be damaged. And secondly, it's too expensive to, to, pr to produce a product like that and then sell it and expect anyone to be able to afford it. You right. couldn't, you can't sell it a $75 handheld elk call or a, or a coyote call. Yeah. Um, so the next logical metal to work with that's, that's affordable is aluminum. Mm -hmm. And we started with that and, um, I'm telling you, we, we've, we, we've got very excited about it. Um, 
specifically like the, the Atomic 13 series that we make in the in the distress calls. We've got three of them and they're different sizes and yeah. lengths. So you've got different barrels that create different tones and we've called one the little raspy, the medium sized one, the mean raspy, and the, the large one is called the big raspy. And the voices um, that we use inside of them or the reed system they are all 100% metal as well. Okay. The reeds are metal. The housing's metal. So when you when you get that call, we look at it as it's, it's, it's generational. Yeah. You, you buy that, and if you don't lose it, you're handing that down to your kid or your grandkid. I mean, we, we, we took the quality and the materials to that level with that. You're not yeah. – there's, there's nothing to fail on that call. Huh. Um, and we – Atomic 13. Atomic 13. And that, that comes from aluminum is the 13th element on the periodic table. Okay. So there's a tie into that mm-hmm. from, a, from a, a, a thing. So we, we use that same idea uh, with an elk call that we produce. We call it the heartbreaker. And what it is, it's a, it's a sister product to one that we made before out of wood. Again, Waterfowl guys know the quality of wood. We made a high-end wood call we call the Matriarch. And we partner with Steve Chappell. For anybody that follows yep. um, Steve, he has a, a TV show as well along yep. with, uh, called Elk Camp. Um, he's one of our um, great partners, you know, along with you and some other the guys, Corey and the guys. Yep. Um, but we worked with Steve on that, and we transitioned his call, the high-end wood one, to this metal. And it made it made quite a oh, difference really? in it as well. <laughs> volume, I wish we could get a picture of your smile as you're saying that. <laughs> well, it's just it was just cool to come up with an idea, work with an idea, and develop it. And then, and to kind of wrap that up, um, we also come up with a really uh, what we call a nifty kind of a novelty line, but but totally functional line in cartridge calls. Mm-hmm. And we took. Again, a solid piece of aluminum, and I had it machined to replicate a 223, mm-hmm. a 243, and a 22250. Um, and we inserted a voice in it. It looks like a real bullet. It's anodized brass and copper. Yeah. And on the on the on the head end of it, where the primer would go, we've got a little key ring thing for you to slip it on the D ring of your backpack or your keys or whatever. Um, you blow through the bullet end. And there's a voice in it, and it sounds like uh, the smallest one is like a rodent, mm-hmm. the medium is a bird, and the large one is a rabbit. Huh. And most all of our stores, they retail for nine nine ninety five. It's a yeah. $10 item, so it's not expensive. But it's for the guy that tree stand hunts and wants a little predator call in case the deer aren't moving that day, and he needs a, he wants the coyote call. He's got this little right. little bullet call or cartridge-style call, um, and we, we released those in 2020, and they've been very successful. A lot of stores have picked them up and sell them right off, their, right off the sales counter. They've just yeah. got them in a little—and we, we have a little display. They fit in. 15 of them fit in it, and, yeah. and stores have picked them up. And uh, mm. those are doing a lot of stuff for us um, in the Midwest and Eastern market right. where the guy's— all are fascinated with elk hunting, but it's, it's, that's a, for a lot of guys, that's a once or twice a year or a non, sorry, not a year, but a lifetime thing. Yeah. You know, the predator stuff is something a lot of Every them do. Day. Before work, winter. after work. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I, yeah. You know, if there's one thing that show season, being in this business, show season in January and February really pulls me away from is how much predator hunting I used to do. I mean, I used to sell a lot of yeah. fur. Yeah. You know, I was in college in the late 80s, so people will be like, well, Randy, that's, you know, that was before the American Revolution or something. But, <laughs> I mean, I paid for an awful lot of books, tuition, and fees with 
with bad her. coyotes. Yeah. And uh, it just something about it that is fun and it's it's again it's a it's a completely different type of hunting but i learned so much hunting predators about wind about movement about anticipation of where are they going to come based on all right it's this time of day i think they're bedded all right if they're bedded they're probably down in this little swale all right with that wind direction that I have up here, which way are they going to come in? Because, you, I mean, it doesn't do you any good to call them in from behind you or whatever. And so all of those little considerations are just part of, in my mind, building that foundational base of, of things that apply to all hunting. I don't yep. care if it's elk hunting, whitetail hunting, you name it. And it was just, one, it paid a lot of bills, and two, it, uh, it was just fun to be out doing it at yeah. a time of year when there wasn't much else going on we shared some stories between you, this week about yeah. growing up in some of the similar <laughs> trap lines and different things we did as, as young boys and yeah stuff to yeah me. i had no idea that you were into trapping until we got to talking trapping um will we be seeing uh more of the aluminum uh, atomic 13 mm-hmm. in the alcohol line or is it just gonna yeah be we've Steve's got line? Um, of course, you know, we've got a few things that I've had with us here on this that we've experimented with. Yeah. I've got top other, secret. Top secret for now. Skunkworks <laughs> lab here. Uh, if everything falls into place, then of course we'll, uh, our model is usually to turn new products loose in, in January of the of that calendar year. We'll have some of this stuff dialed in and, um, I've got stuff with a lot of guys this September. Um, yeah. I've got we've got different calls in development and different stages that guys all over the country are using, and uh, yeah. I get those to the guys that I want. I get it to the guys that are kind of brutal. I need I need honest opinions, and yeah. we want that. I don't want to send product with guys that are gonna, you know pamper us with good reports. I mean, yeah. I, I want them to be comfortable with giving us, if, if they, if we make a piece of junk, tell us. Yeah. Cause then we'll, fine, we'll scrap that and we'll move on to the next thing. I don't, yeah. I don't need them to just tell me that everything is all good because they want, you know, they want right. to not hurt somebody's feelings or whatever. Yeah, we, that, so that doesn't result in progress. Necessarily. No, not at all. So we've got a lot of things out there that um, we're very hopeful that will come full circle by the end of this calendar year. And we'll, we'll introduce them in yeah. January. Um, Since Corey isn't here to be on this podcast with us, uh, he's probably under some sort of non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, trying to get anything out of that guy, it, he's like Fort Knox, man. Yeah. But I think I I got it out of him that he's trying a new call out or two this year he's, for you. We've, we've, we're working on some stuff with him. Okay. That uh, will, uh, I'm very excited about. Yeah. I'm very, very excited about. So one of the things I want to talk about, and this is the my history of back when Rocky was still kind of the the face of Rocky Mountain hunting calls, Rocky Jacobson. He saw me at a trade show one time, and he asked me to come over. And he said, blow on this. Tell me what you think of it. And I was like, Rocky, I'm not much of an out caller. I I can't run a diaphragm to save my life. He's like, well, just try it. So I tried it, and he's like, well, that's not going to work for you. This is too narrow. Like, how do you know that? He's like, well, I can tell that you, air was, you know, that you weren't able to, to throttle the air properly. And he's like, open your mouth. 
I thought I was in the dentist chair. So, <laughs> yep. so I opened my mouth. He's like, tilt your head back. And he has a little pen light and he shines in there. I'm thinking, this is weird, man. He's like, you're going to need a special kind of call for someone with, and he, I think he even said, someone as big with as big a mouth as you have. <laughs> he <laughs> would I, say at that. At first, I thought he's kind of joking. So he's digging through the pile over there. He's like, here, try this, this one. And it got way better. And then he gave me this other one. He's like, try this one. It was the first time ever in my life that I could run a diaphragm call just because I didn't know that they weren't all the same. Yeah, it fit you. Yeah. And so on your website, you guys have for all your elk calls, you know, if you have a wide mouth, if you have a narrow mouth, if, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that uh, maybe it's just me, but that was one of the most useful things anyone ever showed me about running a diaphragm call is selecting the right call. That has to fit you. Yeah. I mean, and Rocky went on to say, well, do you wear boots that are too small also? That's a good, that's a very good analogy. You, you, your shoes have to fit before they'll work for your feet. So yeah. a mouth diaphragm is the same the same way. Uh-huh. Yeah, we have three sizes that we make mm-hmm. um, in configurations of width. And then we even, like in your case, Randy, the palette of your roof is very flat. Yep, very flat. And so um, most domed, uh, arched palette, raised palette calls um, are are arched. Uh, well, that doesn't work for you because it, that flat palate of your roof, your mouth meets that round dome. It leaves little places for the air to escape. Yep. And if you can't, when you put pressure on that diaphragm, you lock it in your mouth with your tongue. If all that air is not going across the latex, you, how do you figure out how much pressure, how to blow your, you get this hissing sound, you get spit running down your chin, <laughs> all of that. But when you can fit that diaphragm in your mouth, close it up with your tongue, the tape seals to the the, the, the fleshy part and that dome fits the contour of your mouth, then all that air channels across that latex right. and it gives you control of it. Yeah. And then the biggest problem people have with the diaphragm is they overblow it. Right. And I've even found myself doing that this week. Like, what are you doing trying to make a cow call in this wind and blowing it louder? And like, you, you're yeah. Stop blowing it so hard because it doesn't sound as real as it can sound as if you'll let off just a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it's all about control of the latex, and to control it, you need to get all the air across it. And to do that, you need an diaphragm that fits you. So we broke yeah. that down, and we have a really, what we think is a pretty easy chart to read. Yep, it is We've got super big, easy. medium, and then, or say, uh, wide mouth. Um, what we would consider most people's normal and then people that have a really narrow or high palate. Mm-hmm. Corey is one of those. Corey has a really narrow high palate. Yeah. And so he blows what we call the TST series and they have, it has a really um, aggressive dome on it. And um, man, he's a master with it. Right. Everybody knows that. I think Corey could blow anything, but those fit him so well um, because he has a, a narrower palate. But, but uh, most people fall in that narrow to, to, um, middle size and you'd see that because the most of our calls are made in that middle ground yeah. um and then and then the next variety of numbers would be in that higher palette and then guys like you um there's not as many so we yeah. don't make as many right but enough that we can we can fix you up and yeah. and uh satisfy what it takes to get you i just want to make on. the point to people because i talk to a lot of people who say i've just given up on diaphragms I can't make them work. Well, I was at that point also. I'd bought every, I was trimming them. I was thinking I needed to bend it. It's, mm-hmm. well, then 
I can't remember what show that was at where I saw Rocky, but anyhow, it was, he had a whole booth full of people there and he took the time and sat me in the chair and I, I felt so stupid to be honest with you, Kurt. And, he's, and in Rocky's way, you know, he's just got a kind of a sense of humor and, a, and an ability to make you comfortable, even though he's kind of heckling you a little bit yeah. but i think he was heckling me just because hey you're supposed to know all this stuff mm-hmm. i had no idea that you guys made these different sizes and widths of call and so i asked him i said well who else does that he's like nobody and i don't know if that's still the case but at that time he told me no nah, no one else really yeah i don't know that. i don't I, but, <sighs> wish well, i had time to pay attention to what everybody else was yeah. doing yeah. um so I, i'm not gonna sit here and say one way or another i don't know i think we we invest more um into that uh when we talk to people about it and and when we lay out what we do with our arrangement of diaphragms than, yeah. than anyone else i would go that far mm-hmm. but i don't want oh, i don't want to sure. sit here and say nobody else does nobody but. has that chart like you guys have you go online rockymountainhuntingcalls.com and you click on diaphragms yeah. and there's the chart right yeah, I've there s- i've seen other companies have charts where they'll they'll tell you what their product is yeah. based upon maybe a latex thickness and what it should do cow to bull mm-hmm. but if but if the diaphragm if their diaphragms are all identically in size right. well that's great for the guys that it fits, it fits. and sure I'll buy this one for a bull yeah. and use this one for a cow but for those guys on the outside edges of that with the taller narrower palate or the wider flatter palate like you yeah. uh, it don't make any difference what they tell you it's supposed yeah. to sound like if it doesn't fit you can't use it right. so if all a boot maker made was 9 and 10 boots yeah, he's only gonna make people happy to have a size nine or ten foot. So, so yeah. So anyway, like I said, I can't speak to yeah. what everybody else does, but um, well, I do know we we do that. It, it's really been helpful for me. And one of the things I want to make sure is that if people, you guys have strong relationships with your retailers. You're, you're in all the big sporting goods yes, retailers. Yeah. Uh, but our audience, we always like to connect our audience directly to our partners i.e. Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. Mm-hmm. So if they go to your website, they save a little money if they use uh, Elk Talk yep. as a promo code. And uh, then they'll they'll also know that they're getting something made in the good old USA right there in Idaho, right? That's right. We have people sitting there right now <laughs> making calls. <laughs> I'm positive of that. Uh, how cool is it that you guys have been able to keep, not just keep, you guys are rising up the ladder of of known quality and acceptance in the calling space, and you're doing it by keeping all the production domestic. Because in some industries, it's just yeah. you know, there's not a textile industry in the United States anymore. No, it's I mean, so and 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 to be t- totally truthful, it, all of our assembly, 100, percent is done here except where we're put into a corner where you can't source it. We, all of our bugles have a, a textile covering. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a great relationship with Sitka. Right. Um, we yeah. have a, a relationship with Realtree. Those products are sourced oh, offshore. They, yeah, they just are. Every textile item you buy in America, with very few exceptions, comes from yeah. overseas. But in our situation, for what it's worth to the listeners, that cover that's sourced overseas shows up as just a cover. Yeah. We are paying um, 
U.S. workers to take those pieces and parts, wherever we have to source them from, and assemble them all right, right in Kamii, Idaho. Yeah. I mean, I've been to your factory. I've seen the old machine that Rocky used to stamp these out on. <laughs> <laughs> now, we're, we've moved beyond that yeah. because, of, because of volume has forced us to, to uh, find different tool makers and stuff to get it. But again, when those frames show up to our factory, it's just a frame yeah. that the, the, the guys and the gals that build them take that frame and a separate piece of latex, which again, uh, I wish we could source latex in the U.S. Yeah. It comes from Malaysia. It's where the trees yeah. that latex is made from are grown. Yeah. The product is, is made and produced there, then, then we, we right. get it in the U.S. But again, the frame, the latex, the process, the tapes, everything is all assembled and built one at a time, one at a time. One at a time. Not so mass production machine, but one person at a time builds each individual diaphragm. Yeah. No, it's an impressive setup. I, I mean, when you drive by it, you're like, they can make that many calls in that building? <laughs> I don't know. You guys must just be working double shifts. Oh, my something. goodness. I, I We work so many hours this summer to keep up. <laughs> And uh, we literally just let people um, over the weekend, Labor Day, um, go back to work in just eight-hour days. Yeah. We've had so many people work so many overtime hours. We've got a great, great staff, and uh, yeah. they stepped up. And, and uh, the customers well, want the calls, and, and we know that because the stores are buying them and restocking the shelves. So yeah. we thank everybody out there that listens that wants to use one of our calls. We we thank them greatly for, for their business. if they don't buy it online, really they can buy it from one of the... Yeah. Any, any retailer that's worth their salt, right? Yeah, yeah you wouldn't, it wouldn't take you five seconds on Google search to type in a Rocky Mountain hunting call and hit the shopping button and you'd be... There'd be 25 thing pieces, places you could buy it. Yeah. Just that quick, so. Well, you're also the, aren't you the official call of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation? Yeah, that we are. Yeah. Yep. That's a great relationship. And have been. Uh, great group. Been that for several years and just working with Bob and the guys over there about finishing up another another contract with them to help as much as we can in yeah. the conservation efforts of what they do. And yeah. and that, that partnership has been um, wonderful for us. We've yeah. met some awesome people and they're just a great bunch of guys to work with. That goes both ways. They love our products. We love what they do. Um, yeah. we've, we've created friendships over that, not just business relationships. Yeah. Well, just over that mountain there and nobody knows what direction I'm pointing. <laughs> but there's a really big, about 10 miles that way, there's a really big RMEF access project. Nice. Yeah. And uh, it's it, it's opened up a lot of land. And, and I'm not going to, I'm hesitant to say where it is because then everyone will know where we're at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that piece over there will get hammered even harder than it does. Like some of the locals there were like, you know, some of us used to have permission across that private. Now everybody gets to go. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the whole idea right. so that it's not just the exclusive few that I think it's 12,000 acres of BLM, a little bit of forest service oh my and goodness, state yeah. land. And uh, they bought this long, narrow strip. I think it was five or 600 acres and instantly turned it over to the BLM. And now it's elk hunting for there you go whoever wants to go yeah. whoever has the tag so it's work that like that that the elk foundation does and i i think all the great companies that support them like rocky mountain hunting calls and you know the list goes on and on uh, the great partnerships they have but 
you and I were talking about this earlier today is my concern is how COVID and the whole 2020, you know, everything being so disrupted, how that's affecting our conservation groups. And so yeah. if, if anybody has the interest, uh, you can go to rmef.org and you can, uh, you can sign up to be a higher level member than you currently are or become a member if you aren't. Yeah. Uh, there's also the donate now button. Um, I, I think of what I spend at all the conservation events and banquets and, uh, that I go to. And it's just part of my budget each year. So even though most of those got canceled, I'm just like, you know what? I, you know, this was in my budget. And you guys will do more good work with it than I will. Yeah, so I think I've heard Corey say it either on one of your podcasts or something of his that uh, anybody that hunts elk, yeah, um, they should by default, you know, be members yeah. of RM, RMEF, and I, I would share that same sentiment. I mean, yeah. for heaven's sakes, even if you just at the basic level thirty five dollars a year, right, for a yeah. membership. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that just whether you're a resident or non-resident, you think about thirty five dollars in your hunting budget. That right. Pretty yeah. minimal. I mean, I, I mean, yeah. Just at its simplest, I think if people were, were if they were required to spend thirty five dollars just to be allowed to hunt elk, yeah. they would do that. So yeah. why not? Why not let those guys do what they do as yeah. good as they do it? They they understand conservation and yeah, they they've always got work things in the works. And yeah. I've heard you guys talk about how well they are getting matches for funds and 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 geez it just seems like a no-brainer to me oh yeah you just do it the the good part is for every dollar you give they're able to match three to four dollars of other partner or agency or or other dollars and that that goes a long way plus they've got a lands group there that's been doing it for a long time and they know what they're doing and you know if there's one unfortunate part they've got so many projects they want to do or could do, yeah, and willing landowners to work with, but there's always that thing about funds, funds, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of a call to action, folks. Help them with that. Help the Elk Foundation with that part of funds because they're a lean, mean operation. You know, when I was on the board, I've been off the board now for two years. Uh, Charity Navigators, a group that always comes in and ranks charities, and they've always army off the whole time. I was all six years I was on the board. They had the highest ranking. I think it's four stars is what charity will give you. But one of the things that ranks on is amount of money that goes to mission. And RMEF was always right near that 90%, sometimes yeah. slightly over, sometimes slightly under. And that's, that's a lot of, a lot of, lot of money and going to mission and a lot of, or very little going to overhead. Yeah. But, you know. and, and that means that's a very well-run organization to see, to see that in action. If you yeah. ever get a chance to go see their thing in Missoula, I don't, don't yeah. pass that up. Yeah. Um, but to see that in action and how big that thing is and to run it that efficiently, that's, that's hats off to that. Yeah. Well, they've got great employees up down all over and you know their regional directors are the ones who work with all the volunteers in the local area so if you're interested in being a volunteer sometimes your your time is worth more than the money if if you're a volunteer go to the rmef website and see who your regional director is and i can assure you they're a great person they're someone passionate about elk hunting and if you got some time or some talent that you can lend to that cause they'll uh those good folks will find a way to to help you put more elk on the mountain. Absolutely. So, 
Well, Kurt, I really appreciate you spending a, a week in this, uh, I don't know what kind of elk camp we're going to call this, this uh, hit or miss elk camp, this below average. I think maybe we'll call it below average. I always tell everyone I'm below average at everything. So, uh, yeah, I would, I would, I'm not going to argue with that. This has been, <laughs> it's been less than either one of us had hoped it to be. That's yeah. for sure. And, and, and I'm saying that because we, we may or may not leave here with our, uh, meat packs on those llamas full of meat. I just, just yeah. the, just the interaction and the encounters. We, I think we both expected and hoped yeah. for, for more, more action, yeah. more view, vocal, more interaction and bugling. Yeah. And this period of time, you know, the week is September 10th and forward 10th through the 15th, say. In my mind, I would expect in a five-day hunt, I'd have two to three, either a morning or an evening, where it was that real interactive, someone's letting me know that they're about ready to come yeah. and put a whooping on me, kind of just the stuff that gets your heart beating so fast and you lay in your tent that night and say, oh man, so close, right? so close, tomorrow. Well, maybe tomorrow isn't the day, but the next day you have that encounter again and sometimes they're really close and like you were saying, you were in North Idaho and you, in, you had three times you're at full draw under 30 yards and you didn't release an arrow. Yeah. Well, the, that's uh, that, that's as close as you can get to the final, absolute joyous outcome. Yeah, I, I mean that's as that, that's almost as fun. I mean, so well, close yeah. to as fun. Because basically, the only thing after that, after you release the arrow, <laughs> is all the work. Is the work? Because <laughs> <laughs> now, now it is work. Now you've just put a <laughs> seven or eight hundred pound animal on the ground. That you got to get him out of there and home and processed and whatever else. So yeah. Yeah. Well, anyone wondering, Corey's in uh, Oregon this week, I believe. I think that's where he's at. I sent one of my camera guys with him. You think I'd know where he's at? Uh, I think you probably should if that's, <laughs> if, you, if you're that intimate with what he's up to and you've got a camera guy with him. Uh, but hopefully they have good luck over there. I think uh, he's hunting with the Shannon and Corey of uh, uh Angry Spike production. Yeah, sounds right. Think is, yeah, and and Oregon hasn't treated them no as favorably as they've liked these last couple years after they've yeah. So I'm sorry, folks. No Corey this week. You're stuck with just me hosting, trying my best to to make excuses for why Kurt and I haven't <laughs> each released an arrow. But I'll tell you this: the country's beautiful. It's big. It's vast. It's not for the faint of heart. No. Growing up in northern Minnesota, if you would have plopped me down here and said, here you go, this is all yours to elk hunt, I would have been so intimidated because of how big this country is. And coming from whatever elevation I was at, I think uh, there we were at 1,200 feet, plop me down at 8,000 feet and tell me to climb to 10, <laughs> well, the wind just came up. Maybe the wind's telling me it's time to shut up and quit talking. It Randy. might be that your your audio guy's going to have be a genius to yeah, make sorry, that folks. tolerable. Yeah, Joe, you're going to have your work cut out trying to get that piece out of there. But I don't know. It's uh, it's getting close to time to put our packs on. Well, maybe the audience will overlook the technical issues with the wind and appreciate the fact that we're actually in the middle of nowhere doing a podcast. What about tech? What does that say about technology? That that does. I well. I thought we were going to be so tied up in elk that we weren't going to have much time to do a podcast. 
But I said, all right, I'm bringing the podcast kit, the recorder with two microphones. And if we get a break in the action, I've never done a podcast way out in the middle of nowhere. Now I can now say. Now you have. I have. Neither have I, by the way. What's that? <laughs> I said neither have I, neither by the way. <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much, Kurt. Thanks for uh, being such a great supporter of, of all that you guys are and making great products and uh, being a, a good friend I've got to know over the last well, four years. I was going to say years. the same thing, Randy, if nothing else. Hopefully you feel the same way as I do. And and uh, we've always had a good relationship and stuff, but this has just made our friendship that much more yeah. richer for, for sure. who knows what's next. <laughs> yeah. And folks, thanks for listening. Appreciate you following along. I hope that you've been out elk hunting or you're getting ready to go elk hunting. And I hope that the bulls are screaming a little more than they have been here in Idaho this week. And if you get that encounter, I hope that it ends up being your meat in the freezer for the winter. And uh, you'll hear from Corey next time. He promised me he's going to do a podcast with the Angry Spike guys. And uh, then after that, I don't know when you're going to hear from me. I've got Wyoming next on my slate. I've always had, I, I'm, I'm not going to say that. I, I, I jinx myself. I was going to say <laughs> I've always had pretty good luck in Wyoming, but this could be the year. Maybe this is the year of the drought for me. Maybe. Oh, I hope not. Boy, I hope not because I had to eat fish twice. In, over the last two weekends, because I'm out of red meat in my freezer. Fish is pretty good, though. Well, I know, but it's not elk tenderloin. No, it's not. It's not no, moose. It's not. it's not deer or antelope. I'm, no, but it's pretty good. Yeah, I, I know. I, uh, I shouldn't complain. I mean, I could have had to eat chicken well, nuggets. Or I was going to say it could have been spaghettios or something oh. for heaven's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the what is it, generic macaroni and cheese or something? Yeah, I'm sure the it. fish was something you didn't go to the store and buy. Still, I bet <laughs> your your hook, line, and sinker. That's true. Was responsible for why it was in your freezer. All right, you, you've given me a better pers- perspective, <laughs> Kurt. But I still want to get some red meat in my freezer. Yes, I understand. So. I'm I'm here <laughs> sharing the same. The same idea. Yeah. Well, take care, folks. Have fun out there. Look forward to catching you on the trail someday.